Good morning, church. Today feels a little bit like a new beginning for me. Uh, Maybe it does here just at Lake Morton in general. The last three Sundays, we've wrapped up two different books, and we've welcomed Pastor Doug Corlew last week here to give a sermon for my ordination. Thank you, by the way, for worshiping with us last week through that. It was very special uh, for me and my family. And we're already three weeks into Advent, uh, which is wild, but we're going to start a new book of the Bible, a new book of the Bible in the middle of Advent, the beginning of which will fit really nicely with Christmas. We're going to start the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm personally very excited for this series. I'm eager to study and work through this book with you all as we worship the Lord by hearing his word. The Gospels are all a little bit different. Mark, for instance, has this feeling of immediacy. It's said of Mark that it was supposed to be read out loud in one sitting. That's the best way to hear it. It's almost like a stage play. Everything happens really fast. And in Mark, Jesus is primarily presented as the suffering servant. But Luke, on the other hand, is this extended study of the life of Jesus. Luke was a very careful investigator and a a doctor, right? He, He looked for eyewitnesses for the life of Christ. And it's often been said that Luke emphasizes the fact that Jesus was the son of man. And John, well, John might be the weirdest gospel. We call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels because of their similarity. But John is way different, and John definitely did that on purpose, It's different, but it's imminently approachable, right? One of the first books we point people to when they first come to the faith is the Gospel of John. And if you've never done that before, if you're looking for a book to point someone to when they first believe in Jesus, you can't go wrong with the Gospel of John. In it, Jesus is unapologetically presented as the Son of God. But Matthew... Well, Matthew... Matthew's rarely a first choice for a gospel. In fact, I'd say out of all of them, it's fallen out of favor, maybe fallen out of popularity. It doesn't have the stage play immediate feel like Mark. It's not written by a doctor like Luke. It's not as unique as John. And so Matthew is frequently sidestepped for one of the other gospels. But Matthew is the first book of the New Testament for a reason. It's been said that Matthew may be the most important document ever written in the history of man. In it, Matthew presents us with Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah of Israel, King of the Jews, Savior of the world. Now to clarify, I think the Word of God is the most important material ever written for man. But in Matthew, we are given Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. And our text today brings us right into the action. We're going to focus on Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So open there with me. Now, before we go any further, you may be a little concerned. And I want you to rest assured that we will return to the genealogy in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. 
But I had this choice to make. It could either be part of this sermon and do all of chapter 1 because we only have a couple weeks left of Advent or return to it at the very beginning of 2023 and give it its own sermon, which I think it's due. So that's what we're going to do. January 1st, we're going to go over the genealogy and look at it in depth. We're not skipping it. In fact, as we read today, we're going to read all of chapter 1. All of it. It's a lot to read, so simply stand as you're able and sit when you need to. You've got a lot of options in front of you. You can stand now and sit later. You can stand later and sit now. You can sit, stand through the whole thing or sit. Whatever you want to do, let's read the Word of God. Pray for me as I get through these names too. This is the Word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matam, and Matam, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Please be seated as we pray.
Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Matthew. We thank you for the gifts that you give us in your word. And now as we put all of our attention here for the next, oh, 35 minutes or so, we pray that you would bless us by your word. That you would conform our lives to your word and convict us of the things we need to be convicted of. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so again, January 1st, we'll dive back into the genealogy, and thank you so much for your patience with me as I try to pronounce those names as best as I could. And we're going to spend a lot of time there, but while Christmas is still in the air, let's look at verses 18 through 25. This passage is all about two people, really, Joseph and Jesus. And one is obviously more important in the grand scheme of Matthew than the other. But nevertheless, Matthew wants us to learn something from Joseph. And he wants us to worship Jesus. So let's look at what this text tells us about them both. First, Joseph was a just and compassionate man. Now the Gospel of Luke takes a couple of chapters to discuss the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And Luke focuses on the perspective of Mary. And presumably, he was able to interview Mary and get all of the details about her experience there. But Matthew's focus is from the perspective of Joseph. The whole genealogy is detailing the line of David. That's the importance. Again, we'll come back to that. The line of David through Joseph. And his account of the birth of Jesus is much shorter. But it gives us many details that we don't learn from the Gospel of Luke. At the very top here at verse 18, we might expect some biographical information about Joseph and Mary or something like that. That's what we're used to in our culture, but Matthew doesn't give us any of that. He just jumps right into the story. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew doesn't hesitate to immediately call Jesus the Christ, as he does in verse 1. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. He's the anointed one of God sent to save his people. Matthew's not really worried about keeping that fact a secret. He wants us to know this whole story is about Jesus the Christ. Before Jesus is even born in the story, he's called the Christ. And the events surrounding his, his birth point to the fact that he's not going to be a normal kid. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph is betrothed to this young woman named Mary. But he finds out that she's become pregnant during the time of their betrothal. So let's pause, and talk a little bit about first century Jewish marriage practices. First of all, people got married pretty young compared to our culture. So Joseph was probably a young man who had already received some type of formal training in a trade, which we learn in chapter 13 as carpentry. That's what Joseph did. Before marriage, young men had to show their future father-in-laws that they were able to provide for their brides, specifically provide a place for them to live. 
It's hard to know exactly how old he was, but it was typical for men between the ages of 16 and 22 to, to be married. Mary, on the other hand, could be as young as 13, 13, 14, when she got engaged to Joseph. Again, Matthew doesn't tell us their ages, but that was common at the time. So we can't say with certainty that Mary was 13, but it wouldn't have been uncommon. And after the young man could show his future father-in-law that he could provide a place to live, the betrothal was made public. It was a public betrothal. It's similar to our engagement practices now, except for one big difference. It was legally binding, right? And it was legally binding in order to protect the woman who was getting married, because now she was promised a home and a life, and if this guy went back on his word, that would, that would really damage her reputation, right? You can't just promise a woman to do something in this culture and fall through. The whole culture was centered around... Uh, the communities that they lived in, and the ability for the man to provide for his wife. During the betrothal period, the young man then, after showing his father-in-law that he could theoretically provide for his wife, had to go prove it. So there was a year where he had to go actually build a place to live. And typically he would build a room onto his father's house. He would go prepare a place in his father's house. And he would take his bride back to the place he had prepared after a year. So after a year-long celebration, one night, the bridegroom would gather around his friends and his family, and he would walk to his father-in-law's house where his future bride was, and he would pick her up in a parade and celebration all the way there and take her back to the place he had prepared. And the celebration would commence for a long time. Weddings lasted a while. Some of this marriage imagery maybe you're picking up on. We'll, we'll return to it throughout the Gospel of Matthew and throughout the, the New Testament. Marriage language is used of Christ and his bride. So in any case, Mary and Joseph are in that in-between stage. Joseph has shown his future father-in-law that he can provide for his wife. And now he's proving it, right? They're in that betrothal stage that's legally binding. The betrothal could only be broken if one group was found to be unfaithful and if the husband pre presented the wife with a certificate of divorce. And as we've read, Mary is found to be with child. So this is a very sticky situation. If he wanted to, Joseph could drag Mary to court. In fact, it would be expected that he would to drag Mary to court and publicly humiliate her. In the worst case, Mary, according to the law, could face death by stoning if Joseph did this. Now, that was uncommon at this time. It was a, it was a real concern as we read in John chapter 8. A woman caught in adultery is threatened with stoning, but that was illegal made illegal by Rome for Jews to just kill their own people. So it would have been like a, a lynching. Nevertheless, Joseph had the right to publicly humiliate his wife. But Joseph, as we learn, is a righteous man unwilling to put her to shame. So he is a righteous man, a just man. That doesn't just refer to Joseph's kind heart. Right? It means that Joseph follows the law and that he loves the law. He cared about being obedient to the law. And he was found righteous according to the law. 
that means he would have been well aware of his rights here, that he could drag Mary to court and humiliate her. But he wasn't only a just man. He was also a compassionate man. He loved Mary. And he was unwilling to put her to shame. I'd like you, whether you are a husband or a wife or single or whatever, to place yourself in Joseph's shoes, just for a second. If you found out your betrothed was having a baby with somebody else, what would you do? Would you be willing to settle things quietly? In Joseph's mind, he was shamed by Mary, right? Culturally and in his mind. Mary, being found with child, shamed Joseph. But he was unwilling to shame her. That says a lot about this guy. That action speaks to the fact that he's a godly man. Not just that he loves the law, but that the law has influenced his heart. In fact, the default response of godly people to being hurt by somebody else should be mercy and compassion. That's God's response to us, right? Jesus will go on to teach that if somebody strikes you on your cheek, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do, Christians? Turn the other cheek. It's built into the gospel here. He has the right to punish us. God does, but he gives us mercy and grace, and we're supposed to do likewise. Now, we know the rest of the story, right? We know that Mary didn't cheat on Joseph, and we know that Joseph doesn't divorce Mary, but it's worth reflecting on the character of the man that God chose to be the earthly adopted father of Jesus. He's a godly man. He loves his wife. He knows the law. He's a just man, but he's also merciful. And he's more than that. So second, Joseph was obedient to God. Let's read on, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In verse 19, we read that Joseph is resolved to divorce Mary quietly. The decision has been made. And as he's making the decision at night, before he goes through with it, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. The angel fills Joseph in on what's really going on. Mary hasn't been unfaithful. The promise hasn't been broken. The baby in her womb has been conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph is given further instructions. You shall call his name Jesus. And we'll return to the importance of that name in a little bit. <clears throat> but it's good that we focus in on the command aspect. The act of naming is really significant. Especially at this time. But still, when we name something, we claim that we possess it. Isaiah 43.1 says, I have called you by name, you are mine. And this would mean that Joseph, if he named Jesus, would be legally recognizing Jesus as his son. So why is that important? Well, the genealogy that we'll go over in a little bit, 
that genealogy is all about how Jesus comes from the line of David, legally, the legal line of David. Matthew traces Joseph's legal line back to that king. The Messiah was supposed to be a king in the line of David and the one who would sit on David's throne forever. But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and legal lines were traced back in Jewish culture through the Father. So how was Jesus going to be brought into this line? Well, Joseph was going to name his son. He was going to adopt Jesus. This is what he's being commanded to do. And remember, this is a dream, right? Joseph could wake up and convince himself that, "Eh, I, I think I ate something bad. I just dreamed all that. It didn't mean anything important. I'm not gonna risk my whole life and reputation just for a dream. But he doesn't do that. Right? Let's look down at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. No small detail. He did exactly what the Lord told him to do. He accepted Mary as his wife, and he names his son. That's extraordinary faith. Luke tells us all about Mary's faith in the first chapter. Luke 1.38, for instance, is Mary's response to the angel of the Lord as, as after the angel tells her, you're going to have a baby by the Holy Spirit. And she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's extraordinary faith, right? And Joseph's here. Joseph's is equally as extraordinary. He gets out of bed and he immediately obeys the Lord. He marries his wife and he names his son. Even though that could have cost him everything in that culture, he prioritizes obedience to the Lord over his reputation, over his standing in society, and ultimately over himself. Together, Jesus' earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, display extraordinary faith. So again, what would you do if this was you? Where would your faith be? Would you trust that the Lord was in control and that the Lord had a good plan? Would you believe that God's plan was greater and better than your plan and that God desired your good Uh, We struggle with this kind of stuff on a daily basis, let alone in a situation as hectic as this. So imagine again, if you were in this situation, examine this morning your faith against Joseph's. How do you stand up? May we each seek to display the kind of faith Joseph displayed here. Amen? We can learn a lot about Joseph from this story. He's just, he's compassionate, he's obedient, and he's faithful. And we should definitely see him as a good example for our own lives. But he's not the only person of importance here. In fact, we could say he's not the most important person in the story, right? We can learn a lot about who Jesus is going to be 
from this passage. So third, Jesus was born of a virgin. It's Christmas time, right? You hear this a lot. We sing about, we celebrate the virgin birth. And it's not a detail in the story that we can just simply skip over. The whole story revolves around this fact that Jesus' mother, Mary, was a virgin when Jesus was conceived. Matthew first mentions it back in verse 18. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Before they came together. This coming together is a reference to the wedding night. Before Joseph went with that wedding procession and celebration to Mary's house, before they came together, the angel comforts Joseph with this fact in the dream. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And even after Joseph did take Mary as his wife, the scriptures tell us that they refrained from intercourse until Mary gave birth. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son. It's verse 25. When Jesus was born, his mother was a virgin. It's hard to wrap our heads around. Maybe the virgin birth is something we take for granted as evangelicals, right? We don't pour a whole lot of thought into. Um, We believe it, right? We confess it, but we don't think about it. Because maybe for some of us, it's uncomfortable even to think about But the virgin birth has been one of the most hotly debated theological topics over the last 150 years or so. With the rise of what's known as liberal theology, and liberal theology, not politics, okay, that's not what we're talking about. Liberal theology had a particular issue with the virgin birth. Because to many of them, it seemed like the most absurd thing that you could come up with. It seemed mythological. So how important is it really that we confess and actually believe that Mary, an actual woman, gave birth and had never had sex? What difference does it make? Well, there are several reasons why the virgin birth is important. First, it marks a new creative action on God's part. Something new is happening here. Jesus is the first fruit of the new creation that God will bring to fruition at the end of history. God is doing something new. Second, it shows that Jesus is more than a normal baby. The virgin birth exclaims the uniqueness and the importance of Christ. He is the Messiah, and even from his birth, he is anointed as set apart. And finally... And most importantly, it demonstrates that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. If Jesus had a human father, then at best he'd be like the prophets, a special guy that's used by God. But the virgin birth means that God himself is the efficient cause of Christ's birth. Let me say that a different way. He is, God is, the one that makes this birth possible directly. Jesus must be more than merely human. He is, in fact, God incarnate, fully God and fully man. 
So it's not a small piece of doctrine. Our whole salvation is not accomplishable without the virgin birth. So while it might seem crazy to us that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, that's kind of the point. It's supposed to wow us. It's supposed to make us praise the Lord. God is declaring to all of creation that he's doing something new. That this baby boy born in a stable is remarkable. The king of kings. And that he is, in fact, the word made flesh. As John says. Now, a couple more important things on the virgin birth before we move on. It's important that we know that Mary in no way had sex with God or something like that. In Greek mythology and other pagan religions, it was common to hear about certain gods taking on a certain form and having sex with a certain person. That's not what happened here. The Holy Spirit is not male. Okay, Mary was actually a virgin when she gave birth. The emphasis here is on the new creative action not on a sexual relationship. Second, just because Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus doesn't mean she stayed a virgin forever. Okay, look again to the last verse. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Many commentators throughout history believe that implies Mary and Joseph had a normal marriage after the events of Jesus' birth. In fact, Matthew will go on to list Jesus' brothers in chapter 13. So any type of attempt to show Mary remained a virgin is usually based on later church tradition with the goal of venerating and honoring Mary, not really with scripture in mind. But the fact still stands. Jesus was born of a virgin, and that's no small detail. It's incredibly important, important for our faith and salvation not just as a cool thing that happened. And this astounding fact leads us to the next thing we can learn about Jesus from our scripture today. Fourth, Jesus is our Savior. Even his name declares this fact. The angel tells Joseph in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now the Hebrew name that we translate as Jesus is something more like Yeshua, which is the same name that an Old Testament leader had. We call him Joshua. And it means Yahweh saves. We call Jesus Jesus because that's the Latinized version of his name. And we call him that in order to differentiate him from other people in Scripture with this same name. But again, on face value, it's not a remarkable name. It's actually a really common Hebrew name. It would be like an angel asking you to name your child Josh. It's very similar to that. But that doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus is the one who will save his people from our sins. Right? We name our children different things for many different reasons. Okay. Maybe we name our child after a beloved family member or friend or someone important that we admire. Maybe, maybe we just like the way the name sounds. Or we pick a name based off a meaning, right? And we hope that that child lives up to that meaning. 
But Jesus is different. He is the Savior of the world. He had nothing to live up to. He was the most appropriately named baby in all of history. And in what way did Jesus fulfill his name? Right? In what way? Well, Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh saves in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the scripture specifically says that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Savior who delivers his people from the life of sin and death to a life of holiness and grace. And he does this through his death on a cross. No sermon on the birth of Christ would be right without mention of his death. Jesus went to the cross as our Savior to take away our sins. He died in our place. He is the Savior of his people. Does that include you? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior? Finally, we learn Jesus' other name. Fifth, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew's main concern in his gospel is to show how Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament. I'm going to say that again. If you're a note taker, write this down. Matthew's main concern in his gospel is to show how Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament, all of them. Fulfillment is the greatest theme of the gospel of Matthew. So he'll go on to show how Christ fulfilled the covenant with David as the king of kings. He'll show how Christ fulfilled the covenant with Moses as the deliverer and savior of his people who brings a new law. He'll show how Christ brings about a new creation and how he is God incarnate. Jesus is all of these things. He is God with us. And the prophecy says that he will call his name Emmanuel, which may be confusing because we just talked about how Joseph was supposed to name him Jesus, not Emmanuel. But this name, Emmanuel, is more of a statement of who Jesus is. He is God with us. John says in John 1.14, very famously, maybe you have this memorized, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. Jesus, who existed before the beginning of time, God, in the same way as the Father, the Word, eternal, all-powerful, took on flesh, became a man, And dwelt among us. In verse 23, here in Matthew chapter 1, is Matthew's way of saying the same thing. Christ is Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. Think about that. God himself, God himself was willing to be born as a man. 
so that he could dwell with his people. Praise the Lord. That's that's Christmas, by the way. That's what we celebrate, right? God with us. Jesus came to us, lost sinners, and dragged us out of the pit of hell that we loved a lot so we could be with him. Advent is all about the presence of God. The presence of God in Christ with us. So what are you going to do with that? God himself has radically broken into history in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself was born of a virgin and died on a cross. God himself has come to you. So what are you going to do with that? I call on you this morning to respond in faith. Place your faith in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Be welcomed into the family of God. And be encouraged today if you are in that family. God has come to you. What else is there to do? You can rest in him. You can have peace in him today. You can approach him boldly this morning. You can have a real relationship with the creator of the universe because Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, has come. And Jesus said at the very end of the gospel, not to spoil anything, he said, I will be with you always. Not only has he come, he is with us still. Amen? Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Stir our hearts, Lord. Us who have now read and been confronted with your word, stir our hearts to worship you. God, you have come to us. We don't deserve it. We were your enemies, but you came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, we praise you, we thank you, and we are wowed by the fact that we can have a real relationship with you. If there's anybody here, Lord, that has not placed their faith in you, I pray that they would be stirred now by the Spirit to do that. Lord, we submit ourselves to you this week. We pray that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, would be on our minds and in our actions, that we would worship you through the week based on our meditation on this passage today. We submit ourselves to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.